Hi, everybody. This is Dan Walker. Welcome to another edition of U.S. Law Radio. Foodborne illnesses, certainly not the most pleasant subject, particularly if you happen to be involved in a case. And now more than ever, these cases are ending up in court with the objective being large settlements. It's a topic that demands a closer look. U.S. Law members Dean Nickus, a partner with Wicker Smith in Miami, Florida, and Brian Donnelly, a partner with Amity Demers and McManus in New York, have spent quite a bit of time researching the subject and join us now to talk about it. Brian, Dean, welcome into U.S. Law Radio. Thank you very much, Dan. Dan, thank you very much. Dean, specifically, what is a foodborne illness, and how many people do these incidents affect each year? Well, Dan, you know, what I can tell you is the science on this foodborne illness is always fascinating to me. Statistics show that there are more than 200 known foodborne illnesses that affect just a, a number of people throughout the country every year. The CDC estimates are last year alone over 76 million illnesses were caused by foodborne illnesses. I think they estimate also that there were 325,000 hospitalizations and at least 5,000 deaths. And what's interesting about those statistics is most in the industry think that those are actually underreported. The numbers are staggering. Now, doesn't that surprise a lot of people when you toss out those numbers? Because you don't really hear too much about them. An occasional food poisoning outbreak will make the news, but certainly not to the extent you just indicated. And you said that there are more than 200 foodborne illnesses? Yes, and what happens, Dan, is that with respect to foodborne illnesses, obviously you've got lots of different kinds. You've got Campylobacter, you've got Salmonella, you've got E. coli 0157H7. There are hundreds of different strains of E. coli alone. But the things we hear most about in the news media are the outbreaks, and particularly dealing with Salmonella and E. coli. So what are some of the common causes, I mean, other than leaving the mayonnaise out for too long? What triggers foodborne illnesses? Dan, what we find often is lack of hygiene can cause these foodborne illnesses. That, in my experience, can be one of the number one causes. In fact, what we like to investigate often is hygiene by the claimants themselves or lack of safe food handling practices. That's what causes the spread of these diseases. So, for example, if I get a case involving undercooked beef or E. coli 0157H7, I want to find out what safe food handling practices the claimant is using. Of course, I'm going to investigate my client's processes as well, but I want to find out, for example, are they using the same utensils to place the raw product onto the grill or the cooking surface and then use that same utensil throughout the cooking process? If they are, then we've got a cross-contamination issue, and I may be able to shift some of that responsibility, some or all, over to the claimant. Sometimes the simple act of washing their hands carefully or thoroughly washing vegetables before consumption can help with the prevention of foodborne illnesses. And there's so many warnings out in the media and in the industry right now that I think our jurors are becoming a lot more sophisticated. Okay, well, put your white lab coat on here and talk to us about the most common bacterial or viral agents that are at the root of some of these claims. Well, as we were discussing before, I think what you find... Most frequently, in my experience, are salmonella and lately E. coli 0157H7. When we're talking about E. coli 0157H7, of course, that gets everybody's attention because it's probably one of the most dangerous bacteria that we're dealing with out there. It is particularly dangerous for children and for the elderly because it compromises their renal function. They're at much greater risk and can cause a myriad of uh, related problems. And with the E. coli 0157H7, that is most often going to be associated with undercooked beef products. But 
frankly, Dan, you'd be surprised with what these diseases can be caused by. Uh, some cereals can be a conduit for salmonella, so it, it's mind-boggling. So, Brian, any food poisoning outbreaks that you can cite for us? Well, I'll tell you, Dan, the statistics on this is staggering, as Dean mentioned at the beginning of our discussion. But so far this year, and obviously we're not through the month of February just yet, the U.S. Food Safety and Inspection Service has issued nine recalls through February 16th of this year from everything from chili products to barbecued beef, ground beef, veal, egg and milk products are very common sources of foodborne illness. So here we are six, seven weeks into the new year. There have been nine countrywide recalls thus far. And obviously we're all familiar with some sensational you know, claims of foodborne illnesses, but just this month in Japan, There were a 1,000 students in some Japanese school who ate some soup, and 13 were hospitalized, 48 teachers were ill. So here we are, we're very fresh into the new year, and there's been many recalls and outbreaks across the world. Foodborne illness is such a costly and dangerous thing. What is the food industry doing to combat the issue and resulting claims, Brian? Well, you know, the food industry, years ago, milk was a common agent to transmit foodborne illness, and then, you know, pasteurization was developed. And now the pasteurization process is being used in juice products as well. But the industry has set up some of its own internal guidelines to monitor these hazards. And one of the things that they're looking at is during the food production process is just identifying the control points of where these hazards come in and seeing if they can be eliminated. And, you know, the government, of course, has a substantial hand in this as well. You have the Centers for Disease Control, which is part of the U.S. Public Health Service, that helps to monitor and investigate these foodborne illnesses. And they work together with the FDA and the Department of Agriculture to regulate these industries. Have there been any recent legislative changes you can talk to us about regarding food handling guidelines, Brian? Dan, there have been very recent significant changes by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. President Obama signed into law as of January 4th is something that's called the Food Safety Modernization Act. This basically is the largest sort of legislative overhaul of U.S. food safety law since 1938. And to implement this new law, the FDA has requested a budget of $4.3 billion dollars to you know, promote and implement food safety. Dean, how do we effectively defend clients or insurance companies against these claims? Well, Dan, this is a topic that we could talk about for an hour alone. So in a nutshell, what I can tell you is we want to carefully analyze the claimant's medical records on two main fronts. We want to compare them against known incubation periods for the disease process at issue, first of all. So, for example, With salmonella, we know that the incubation period is typically 12 to 72 hours. So if the symptoms the claimant is complaining about manifest outside of that time window, the cause of the salmonella may not be our client's product, but rather something else that the claimant consumed. That's why we always want to thoroughly investigate the claimant's food history, and that type of information is typically available to us either in the medical records themselves or if there is a suspected food-related complaint the local emergency room physician will typically report that to the local health department, and the health department inspector will secure a food history. So that's something we want to get our hands on right away. We also want to determine what the other possible causes are of the disease process. So with E. coli 0157H7, for example, that we were talking about before, 
We want to look to see if during the incubation period the patient was exposed to other potential sources of that pathogen. So we want to see what other food they consumed. Were they at a petting zoo, for example, because that's an easy transmitter of E. coli 015787. We want to see if they were exposed to contaminated water. There are a number of things that could cause the passage of E. coli 015787. On the defense side, of course, in terms of our own clients' materials, we want to gather and review their HACCP records, the Hazard Analysis Critical Control Point records. We want to find out what their sanitation procedures were, what their supplier verification documents are, and their test results to establish and explain to the jury the appropriate methods of food handling that our clients have and why the claimant's case is not on solid water. And of course, as always, Dan, we want to make sure we retain well-qualified experts in the industry that can explain these very complicated issues to a jury. Yeah, that has to be key. I wonder if you can favor us with a case study where you've successfully defended a client against a foodborne illness claim. Dan, I'll, I'll jump in there. I'll tell you, one of the very common types of cases that we run across in, in defending these contaminated food cases or foodborne illnesses cases is the foreign object, the product that's just not supposed to be in your macaroni and cheese. And in New York, a case that I handled comes to mind where someone, the claimant in the case, claimed that there was a mouse, a whole mouse, that was in macaroni and cheese that they bought from my client's market. And one of the things, and Dean touched upon this, is as defense counsel for a client, finding out, you know, how the product is manufactured, what the processes are, what the safeguards are in place. And in that case, we were able to establish, because the offending mouse was preserved, we were able to establish that, you know, this is a cooked food product. It's cooked at the factory. The mouse was never cooked. And obviously, this was something that was put into this either by the claimant or by someone else, but had nothing to do with our manufacturing process. So can you talk about product tampering claims in the food industry, Dean? Are they as prevalent? And what sort of dangers do they present to the defendants? Well, Dan, the biggest concern we have with these product tampering cases, from my perspective, is my client's brand integrity. You look at companies that have spent billions and billions of dollars over years and years to develop that relationship with the consumers, that their product is safe. And any time you have a claim like this, it always can impact that brand integrity. So when you mention the word Tylenol, what immediately comes to many people's minds is that cyanide Tylenol crisis back in, in 1982. Last year, in 2010, Jell-O pudding had a scare where someone replaced the Jell-O pudding powder with a mixture of sand and salt and returned them back to grocery stores up in, in the northeast, up in Brian's area. And those were sold to unsuspecting customers. And thankfully, no one got seriously sick. But of course, there's no question that impacted the brand integrity for that particular defendant. Brian, do you have an example for us you can share where you successfully defended a client against the claim of product tampering? Well, sure. You know, my case actually was similar to Brian's. We had a case involving a plaintiff who claimed to have partially consumed a cheeseburger from a restaurant that supposedly contained a uh, dead mouse that was killed by heat exposure during the cooking process. Now, like Brian's case, the level of detail the plaintiff gave was just clearly not believable. And when we got the remains of the sandwich tested by an outside laboratory, they were able to go ahead and confirm, number one, that the mouse didn't die during the cooking process, but rather was killed by a household mousetrap. 
It had not been exposed to heat, and the level of detail that these experts can go to is astounding. They were able to tell us that the hair on the mouse had not been exposed to heat. They were able to check inside the mouth of the mouse and see that there was nothing behind the teeth, no meat enzymes, for example, nothing under the paws. The level of the detail is astounding, and that's a situation where we shared that information with the plaintiff's lawyer who ran to the hills and withdrew from the case. And a question we always ask, if people want to learn more about foodborne illnesses or about how to protect themselves from litigation, where should they go? With the Internet, there's a myriad of sources out there for both you know, the consumer and the attorney and any Internet search concerning foodborne illness or food poisoning outbreaks will bring up links to hundreds of sites, including governmental agencies who keep statistics on these outbreaks and you know, investigate them across the country. And to add to Brian's point, I would say, sure, you you would always want to start with the CDC or the FSIS from a governmental standpoint. They obviously have a lot of information that is helpful in defending these cases. And, of course, both Brian and I are always available to anyone who would like to uh, contact us, and we'd be happy to share our experiences. Great. Well, Brian and Dean, it was a treat talking to you both. Appreciate that you were able to join us today here on U.S. Law Radio. Thank you very much for having us. Well, that's it, folks. We're fresh out of time. U.S. Law Radio is produced by Roger Yaffe. Send your comments and show ideas his way. This edition of U.S. Law Radio has been brought to you by FCA Limited, forensic engineering and origin cause experts working nationwide since 1970, and by Ringler Associates. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided injured parties and their attorneys with the finest structured settlement services. This is Dan Walker. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you again next time for another fresh edition of U.S. Law Radio.